0: Did y'all believe Dylan talks about he's, he's nervous when he sings? I don't believe that for he He's lying. I don't believe that for a second. He's just saying that because he knows he's awesome. Let's go to God, the word of prayer. Uh, great and awesome Father, we come before you uh, truly, truly grateful that we do have a place where we can come together and meet uh, where there's A.C. and uh, we can be refreshed uh, I do pray God that you'll give us a moment to prepare our hearts to leave because we can't take this with us. Uh, but we can't take your word with us, God. and I pray that you will prepare our hearts to take your word with us, that uh, the heat will not distract us uh, from the message you are uh, bringing to us today. Uh, Father, I know that I've truly been convicted uh, by uh, the need for repentance in my life, and I'm just so grateful. Uh, For your grace, your mercy, and your patience that allows us the time uh, that we need uh, to make the changes that we need in our lives. Uh, Speak through me, God. I pray that you will speak to our hearts. And for those who are not here, God, I pray that this uh, message will reach them in some way, form, or fashion. We love and thank you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I just wanted to start by thanking everyone for your prayers. Um, Noah is doing well. Um, you know, Zalika, uh, also needs your prayer. She spent the last two nights with him in the hospital, uh, recovering from his surgery, uh, on his left elbow. Hopefully, uh, he will have some movement restored. For those of you who have been on this ride with us for the past five years, you know that this is, uh, his third surgery. So we're praying that God will bring the desired results. Today is his 10th birthday. So he's not excited about being in the hospital, but he is excited about his birthday because my son will look for any reason to milk a birthday and getting gifts. So he is excited about that. Um, But he's in good spirits. Uh, I'm tired. Siani's tired, but we're good. So thank you for your prayers. Uh, Today we're going to continue on with our lesson on repentance. I wanted to thank Stephen for. Giving us a great message last week. Uh, and also for correcting my uh, mispronunciation of metanoia. I do have a Bible app that actually, software that actually says, I just, I don't know, I got caught up in the, what everybody else says, but it's metanoia, All right, so I just wanted to make sure I get it correct. You know, Stephen, you could correct me if I'm wrong, brother. Uh, I was struggling a little bit because Glenn stole my scripture, so I guess I ain't got nothing else to preach about. I mean, he did everything, but uh, 2 Corinthians 7, let's turn our Bible. Uh, we're talking about being refreshed. If you join us for the first time, uh, you know, as, you're, as you walk out of this heat wave into this refreshingly cool building, it's not far from what true repentance is. It's like you're, you're walking out of a situation in life where you were once an enemy of God and you're now, you come to this, this refreshing place in your life and that's called repentance because the Bible teaches us that repentance brings times of refreshing. So imagine feeling like this throughout the whole summer and everywhere you go, you're at the bus stop and you get this cool air and And you're the only one that's cool, right? And you're standing next to people and they're like gasping for air. And and you're just like, what's wrong with you? I'm I'm refreshed. That's what repentance is like. When you know that you're right with God, everybody else is losing their minds, but you're, you're at peace. You have this peace that comes over you because you know, at the end of the day, I'm good with God. And that is the times of refreshing that we're talking about. So Uh, We're going to look at today how to produce true repentance. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Let's talk in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. Uh, You know, Glenn already read the scripture, but I think we, let's read it again. I like the Bible, so it doesn't hurt to read it again, right? It says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. You know, there are times when we need to hurt each other's feelings to get each other on the right track. You don't need to apologize for those conversations. Somebody may actually feel offended, but if you're calling them, like, like, like uh, Stephen mentioned, if you're calling them to get back on track because you're off a degree, and you're just like, hey, we've had this talk before. You're off track. We need to get back on track. Well, I don't like how you said it, but is it true? Now look, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings, but I'm not. Because now you're going you're back on track. That's basically what Paul is saying here. The Corinthian church was doing some crazy things. And he had to write them a letter to get them back on track. It's like, what are you guys doing? And so he goes on and he says, "I Though I did regret, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet, now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry. You know, we don't go around looking to hurt people's feelings. But because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so were not harmed in any way by us. You didn't take it personally. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You know, Paul talks of, he speaks of two types of sorrow godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And sometimes sorrow itself can be mistaken for repentance. We often mistake someone who feels really badly about what they did as, someone as, as okay, well, that person repented. They felt they said they're sorry, so they're good. That doesn't mean that. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If we had a nickel for every time our kids said sorry and it went and did the same thing the week later, you know what I'm talking about. And so just because someone is sorry doesn't mean that they've repented. And so we got to look at this a little deeper here. Now Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. And so sorrow in and of itself is not repentance. Now this misunderstanding is far-reaching. And this misinterpretation of repentance has given life to false doctrines and salvation. The sinner's prayer renounce your sin, say this prayer, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, beg for forgiveness, and you will be forgiven. That is nowhere in the Bible, and it's not connected to repentance. Jesus did not say, you say this prayer, and I will wipe your sins away. That is not true repentance. Now, a prayer can get you on the right track. Even a heartfelt prayer can get you on the right track. But it does not involve salvation. Penance. Where you punish yourself, you, you go, you, 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 you inflict yourself, you punish yourself to show just how sorry you really are. Some people throughout history has even gone as far as wounding themselves and cutting themselves to show how, how broken, how sorry they were for what they did to God. Some churches encourage that. But that's not biblical. There's no way God tells you to hurt yourself to show how, I mean, think of how cruel a God that would be. To have us go and wound ourselves to show how sorry we are. No, what, it sta- what God did is like, you know what, I'm going to wound my son on your behalf. He's going to be your sacrifice. See, God understands what leads to repentance, what leads to change. True repentance is refreshing. Take a deep breath of this cool air. This is what repentance feels like. When you're right with God, it's getting back on track. It's feeling like, man, you know, I did the right thing. I did what God asked. I feel terrible about it. But, man, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life. To pleasing God. But James, how do you know? How do I know if I produce true repentance and not worldly sorrow? I'm glad you asked. Because that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Producing true repentance. You know, Glenn got up here today and he said, I have achieved true repentance. I have godly sorrow led me to repentance. And look, the brother's back. He'd walked away from God for a while. I was there. He walked away from God. He owned his sin. You guys heard what he said, right? He didn't blame anybody. He tried to blame the brothers, but he, he, even, he even got real about, I used to love him. Like, now I love him. But it's that type of honesty and self-awareness that brings us to Repentance. So what does worldly sorrow produce? Because we got to be, we, we, we're going to talk about godly sorrow later. But we need to dig on this worldly sorrow thing because it says that this produces death. So we need to know what that is if we're to produce true repentance. True repentance is not worldly sorrow. You know, as a young baby, babies learn how to manipulate my, both my kids knew how to get mom and dad to do what they wanted to do just by shedding some tears. And as adults, man, we don't, we don't, we don't grow out of that, for the most part. We know how to get what we want. If we want something bad enough, we'll pout about it, we'll complain about it, we'll cry about it until somebody says, "All right, enough is in the hit. Take it. Go. Do whatever you want." But you know. When it comes to worldly sorrow, we got to be very careful because worldly sorrow produces these attitudes. And and I just want to make clear at the root of what I'm going to talk to you about is pride. Pride is the root sin of worldly sorrow. And there are fruits that this, this, this worldly sorrow produces that we have to be aware of. All right. The first thing is damage control. Worldly sorrow produces damage control. Now we see this happen many, many, many times. A guilty party calls a press conference to tell their side of the story. Some publicly deny any and all allegations. I did not have relations with that woman. They even accuse the accusers of lying. And they will swear on their dead mother that I did not do this, and they will go out and they will they will pump themselves up. They will give all sorts of and and and, and they'll surround themselves with a bunch of lawyers that will assassinate the accuser's character, and try to tear them down, to discredit them, and and they will go to full lengths to convince people that they are actually innocent. And what happens? Some people fall for it, right? We believe. Well, he said sorry. Said he didn't do it, so I got to believe him. I got to take his word for it. Only to retract their story in the face of irrefutable evidence. You know, God has irrefutable evidence against every single one of us. And that should tell us something. God knows. So if God knows, why not just come clean? But worldly sorrow produces this damage. We go into damage. We want to fix what we did because we're afraid of the consequences. So we want to fix it. We don't want to deal with anybody. We don't want anybody having to talk with us. We don't want anybody pointing out anything. And even if it means throwing some people under the bus, I got a reputation to protect. You're You're not bringing me down. But godly sorrow comes from offending God. You realize who you sinned against. You know, right here in this story, Adam got caught by God himself. And he tried to control the damage of his sin in Genesis 3, verse 8. I love this story. Since says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, this is is the part I like. The woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it (sighs) again it starts from the very beginning God already knew God knows he even said he even gave him a chance didn't you eat from the tree God already knew he just you know what yes I did I'm, I'm I'm but what did he do he did what every husband does, right? No, I'm just kidding. He went into damage control. He went into damage control. No, 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 I got to fix this. She did it. <laughs> you know, damage control, it, it, it's, you You panic, and, and, and you just try to, you try to, Explain your way out of it instead of owning it, instead of owning it. Now, damage control is not limited to just your attitude of getting caught. It could also come from wanting to avoid known consequences of the sin. Consider God's rebellious people, the Israelites. In Numbers 21, verse 4, it says, then they traveled from Mount Hor to the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient along the way. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? But there's no bread or water. And we detest this worthless food. Now let's stop. You know, it's worthless food they're talking about, right? It's talking about the manna that God rained from heaven. You know, it's a scary thing when Christians start to complain about blessings of God as worthless. You're not at a good place spiritually when you start to complain about the things that God has given you. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit the people. Many of the people of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned for, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. You guys know the rest of the story, right? They repented and lived happily ever after. Fear of death or even going to hell may provide a first step towards repentance. But after a while, it dissipates. You no longer are afraid of hell, especially when you walk outside. You're like, it could never be worse than this. I mean, is there a place hotter than this? Oh, I can handle this. I think we even doubt whether hell is that bad. And so the fear doesn't keep us from doing wrong anymore. We don't afraid, we're not afraid of hell anymore. We're not even afraid of dying. Some people would probably prefer, if you've if you got a lot, of, a lot going on in your life, you're like, you know, death might actually be a good escape. You might convince yourself that no longer living is a good thing. But that's not godly sorrow. Just fearing hell, fearing punishment. Israel complained, God disciplined them, and it didn't lead to repentance because they were worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow. You see, once things started getting better and the signs of relief started to appear, their fear disappeared. Their respect for God, their loyalty went right out the window. You know, sometimes God sends trials and challenges our way as a result of some bad decisions we made. And we ask for prayer like spiritual people do. Hey, pray for me. I'm going through this rough time. And it's not because this is something that God is. You know, there are times where those happen, where God sends trials and challenges to refine us and mold us. But then there's some things that come that's just a consequence of our sin. And we're going through it, and we're asking people, please pray for me. I'm going through this right now. I don't know how I'm going to figure this out or how I'm going to get out of this. And you know what? What spiritual people do, they pray for you. They pray for you. But it doesn't mean it's going to lead to repentance. Repentance. Because just because we're afraid of the consequences doesn't mean things are going to change. Because as soon as God answers that prayer, because God answers the prayers of the righteous, as soon as things get better, if you haven't truly changed from inside, you're going to go right back to doing what you did. That got you in the situation in the first place. And so this is why we got to understand what the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. God designed our repentance to respond to his kindness and to desire heaven rather than fearing hell. God doesn't want you to be motivated because you're afraid of hell. He wants you to be motivated because you love him and because you're responding to the kindness he showed you. God didn't send any poisonous snakes in your garden, did he? You there's sins in the Bible people did one time and that was it. Boom. If you're still around, you need to be praising Jesus for God's kindness. Second thing is self pity. Worldly sorrow produces self-pity. Some people believe that they repented because they cried a lot. And not just any, I mean, I'm talking like some ugly crying. And you know what happens to us? Some of us may even doubt our own repentance. Like, man, have I changed? I didn't cry like that. You know. So we're studying the Bible with somebody, and they don't cry at the cross, and we're like, "How do you not cry at the cross?" And then we make it our mission to get that person to cry. It's like, no, Jesus hung on the cross. And then we start adding all sorts of stuff that's not even in the Bible. I mean, they cut him with 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 with, with glass, and they pulled out his nails with pliers, and. And they wrapped his ankles in barbed wire and then nailed them to the cross. And you're like trying to get a reaction from this person, trying to get them to shed a tear because you cried in your cross study. And you can't fathom how someone would not cry. Some of us, people weren't even ready because they didn't cry. Bro, you didn't cry at your wedding? You didn't cry at your funeral What? I didn't start crying till I had kids. <laughs> That's just the God honest truth. <laughs> you know, we often associate brokenness with a lot of tears. Someone's not broken unless they cry and they got to cry a lot. Jesus wept. So we like, hey, Jesus wept. David cried. Mary Magdalene even wiped Jesus' feet with her tears. Paul, Peter, both cried. But get this. So did Cain. So did Esau. So did Judas. They also shed tears. But were their tears of godly sorrow? You know, Cain in Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7, he was very angry because God refused his disrespectful offering. He thought God was being unfair. But God answered in Genesis 4, verse 6, why are you angry? Why why do you look sad and depressed and dejected? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin crouches at your door. It desires is for you, but you must master it. God warned Cain that sin was right there, and he had to master it. But he was all depressed. He cried. He was was upset. He was dejected. And and, and sadly, he did not master it. And later on, he went and he killed his brother. Worldly sorrow led to death. He didn't say that worldly sorrow is going to lead to your death also. He says the worldly sorrow leads to death. Esau, Hebrews 12, cried loudly and bitterly, begging to get back the blessing he impulsively gave up for instant gratification. You know, when we, when we impulsively get ourselves involved in something just because we're trying to meet our own need, We're giving up something far more precious. You know, this is, a, this is a very powerful story. Very powerful illustration. This is a son who, whose birthright, you know, Esau, after his father passed, he was supposed to be the next leader of the family. He was supposed to be the spiritual leader of the family. He would get double the inheritance because he was the firstborn. He had a lot of responsibility. There was a lot riding On his birthright and he let the fact that he was hungry so uh, uh, here take it take it whatever just give me something to eat sometimes we're like that with our purity we give up the precious birthright that we have with God for simple gratification that makes us feel worse afterwards. Doesn't make you feel any better. Afterwards, Esau was so upset. Hebrews 12 said that make sure no one is immoral, or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn for a single meal. He was It wasn't even like his brother was gonna cook him a meal every night for the rest of his life. One meal. You know that afterward he wanted his father's blessing, but was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. You know, sometimes it only takes one time, one act of self-gratification to ruin a person's walk in relationship with God. Because you can get so guilted out. That you missed that window of repentance. Esau went back and it was too late. And the Bible teaches us that he and his brother had this bitter relationship. They later on was able to reconcile that relationship. But Esau never got his birthright back. It was never the same. Judas, we know the story of Judas. He deeply regretted his betrayal of Jesus. In Matthew 27, verse 3, it says, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, Judas was afflicted in mind and troubled for his former folly, and with remorse, with little more than a selfish dread of consequence, he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned. And betraying innocent blood, they replied, what is it to us? See to that yourself. And casting the pieces of silver forward into the holy place of the sanctuary of the temple, he departed and he went in health and hanged himself. You know, when I look at this passage, I'm like, man, he wasn't that far off. I mean, you think about it, right? He, he was afflicted in mind. He, 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 was. You know, some scriptures even say he repented. But we know that there's a repentance where you can re, you can repent as a result of a consequence that doesn't necessarily turn you to God. So his mind, his conscience, conflicted him. He felt bad. It said he felt remorse. He even went, took the money. Gave it back, so he tried to do the right thing with that. But what was, his, what was his mistake? Why didn't he turn to God? Worldly sorrow. I mean, he did all the right things. Some of these things, we would even encourage, you know what? You need to go, you need to take that back, you need to tell them. We would even encourage Judas to do what he did. But he didn't turn to God. Tried to control the damage he did by himself. And because he was in self-pity, he never saw God's grace. He couldn't see God's mercy. He forgot how loving Jesus was. And that's what happens. When you're in self-pity, when you're throwing yourself this pity party, only miserable people show up. Nobody shows you how good and gracious God is. He forgot He was walking with Jesus. This isn't someone who heard about Jesus. This is someone who walked with Jesus. You can walk with Jesus and still miss the grace. Still miss his mercy. Still miss the fact that he is a forgiving and loving father. Self-pity does that. You know why? Because it makes you out to be the victim. Self-pity makes us out to be the victim. And when you think about it, it is a brilliant strategy. You're like, Jay, well, why is self-pity a brilliant strategy? Because no one confronts a victim. They comfort victims. So if you portray yourself as the victim, bro, come in, man. I, I feel you, bro. Come on, sis. Let's pray. You get all the comfort in the world, but no one's going to confront the fact that you're in sin. And we know how to make our story sound juicy. <sighs> I've been lonely for years. I'm watching everybody else get married around me, and, and I've been faithful, and I've served, and, 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 then, and me, 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 pity, 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 party, party, party. The Bible says that the Lord is our great reward. If you got God, that should be enough. I worked hard. I do this, and I do this, and I can't get this, and I don't get this. And we thought, and bro, you know what, bro, I feel you. I understand. And, and, and we invite all the other pity partiers to our party because they comfort us until somebody walks by and notices Something's not right about this party. The tears of self-pity are dangerous. Because when you believe that you are the victim of your circumstances and that there's nothing you can do to change it, you become further entrenched in sin. And we can become so convinced that we start to convince the people who love us and are close to us, and then they start to believe. They first start out like, no, you can change anything. But because we become so convincing and and we're so steadfast to our story and we stick to it and we don't bend and we don't yield, and they start to think, well, maybe you can not change. And then they start to question whether you can change, whether God is powerful enough to get you out of this rut. And then they start to enable you. Yeah, you're right. You have been alone for a long time. You know what? Amen. Come on. You know, th- don't worry about it. They said they're a Christian. Okay, well, as long as they say they're a Christian, it should be fine. Instead of having someone love you enough to confront you and say, hold up, wait a second. Think about what you're about to do here. You're about to give up your birthright. For a single meal, in comparison, God wants to give us life to the full. You can't enjoy that if you're throwing yourself a pity party, if you're always the victim. The Bible says, Romans 8, 28, we are what? More than conquerors. He doesn't say that we're victims. Since we're conquerors, yes, you may be a victim of a scam. You may be a victim of, of theft. You may be, a, but you don't stay a victim. There's no victory as a victim. Isn't that something? We need to thank God for people he put in our lives that can see through those pity parties. I can tell you right now, I've had my share And I I thank God for my wife Zalika Proctor Warren. I try to go. I've tried to invite her to my pity parties, and she would look at me with that love and just like, "Man, I love this man," but no, (laughs) I'm not. I'm not gonna. I don't see it that way. And you know what that does? It forces you to really look at yourself. Say, wait a second, what's going on here? Am I making Excuses, which is the next thing we're going to talk about. Worldly sorrow. I can't think of anything that produces more worldly sorrow than excuses. Now, even though Jesus said that sin comes from within our hearts, sometimes we don't want to accept that. In Mark 7, verse 20, Jesus says all these evils come from within and defile a person. Evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft. we want to blame the internet, we want to blame movies, we want to blame this one and that one. And Jesus says no. It comes from within you. It's the only way you'll see your need for God is when you accept what you really are. And here's the thing. It took me a long time to get this, but the devil cannot make me do what I'm not willing to do. That's empowering and it's convicted. The devil cannot make you do what you are not willing to do. Now you're like, well, James, the devil's really powerful. So what? God is more powerful. There is no comparison. There is no God is here and Satan is here. No, no, no. There's God and that's it. Satan has to ask God for permission to tempt you. So what does that say about Satan? He can only get you to do what you are willing to go along with. All he can do is present the opportunity just like he did to Eve. Take that fruit. Oh, you eat from that tree, you'll be just as wise as God. He didn't put a spiritual gun to her head and be like, get over there and eat that fruit. He provided the opportunity. He appealed to her desire that came from within her. Satan only uses what's already in us to get us to sin. You know, James James said, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Satan actually running away from you? I think we often see ourselves running away from Satan. But James is like, no. First, you submit yourself to God. You get your, your, your spiritual backup, and then you stand firm. You resist, which means that we also can choose not to resist. If he's telling us to resist, then that means we also have the option to not resist. What does that tell you? It's teamwork. Sinning is teamwork. You and the devil working together. When I see it like that, I take my sin a lot more seriously. You know, Jesus called it out of the Pharisees. He's like, you know, the reason why you guys don't see it is because you're of your father, the devil. When you see it like that, like, so you mean to tell me that if God, when God is not my, when we're not in a relationship, the devil is my father. Jesus went a step further, he says, when you lie, you're speaking his native tongue. So when you lie, you speak the tongue of the devil. You're speaking the language of the devil. Some of us are multi-bilingual. We speak, we have, we speak English, but our native language is Espanol for most of us. Right? So when you're around people you know and people you're comfortable with, you speak your native language. Satan's native language is lying. So when you lie, you're not speaking what God gave you. And so what is he saying? You got to be a willing participant. But that means we can also resist him. This verse exposes both Satan and our excuses. Excuses are the clearest when they come up as blame shifting. We blame our upbringing. My parents made me do it. Our genetic makeup. My grandparents made me do it. We blame the society. My friends made me do it. Or like Eve, the devil made me do it. How can you tell if you or someone else is in a path, in this path of worldly sorrow? You got to listen for the excuses. Listen for the excuses. They usually come right after a confession or apology. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm late again, man. Traffic was crazy. It's traffic's fault. Now I need to confess that I have bitterness in my heart towards you because you never got back to me. I'm, not, I'm sorry for not bringing this up sooner, but and I was afraid of what your response would be. We make excuses for not talking to people, for not resolving conflict, for why we're late, for why we're not willing to deny ourselves. Y'all listen for the excuses. And they come from worldly sorrow. They'll never go away. Yeah, I love this quote. Uh, well, look, before we get to that, we we'll going to wrap this up soon. You know, one of the most famous excuses in the scriptures comes from Moses' brother Aaron. Here's Moses up on the mountain, getting the instructions from God to come down to his people. Now, you remember what we read before, right? They got bit up by snakes. They asked Moses to pray for them. God, things got a little better. So now here they are again. Moses goes up on the mountain for 30 days or 40 days, and and God gives him the commandments that's going to move his people forward to the promised land. And Aaron's there. Aaron is supposed to be the priest. He's supposed to be the guy in charge. And people start complaining, like, well, look, we don't know where this Moses guy is. He's been up there in this terrifying mountain that we can't even go close to because God commanded us. Up. We can't even go up there to see what's going on, if he's dead or not. So we need you to make us a God. We need you to do something. And what did Aaron do? Aaron got everybody together and said, okay, give me all your gold. And they put it together. Everybody contributed. and He took it. And then Moses comes down from the mountain because God said, you need to go down there and check on your people. They have lost their minds. James Warren's translation. In verse 21, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my Lord. Aaron answered, you know how these people are prone to evil threw the whole church under the bus. <laughs> they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. That's for this fellow Moses who brought up about of Egypt. We, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. <laughs> it was a miracle. His out came this calf has got to be. One of the most famous excuses known to man. But here's the thing. I don't think Aaron thought it was a bad excuse. I mean, he gave this excuse to Moses. So he had to believe that this was a good excuse. That I put it in out came this calf. It just popped out of nowhere. Now, it sounds ridiculous to us, but I I bet in that moment, it didn't sound ridiculous to him. Have you ever heard yourself make an excuse that sound reasonable to you? I mean, you tell yourself, you rehearse it, and you believe it, and you sound convinced in telling it. And the person that hears it, like Jesus looked at the rich young man, they love you. But they're like, he's just telling me another excuse. Just just making an excuse. And you know the scary thing to me about excuses? Is that when you're in the habit of making excuses, people don't expect anything other. They don't expect anything better of you. They don't expect you to, to be better because all you do is keep making excuses. And so after a while, it's like, I'm just going to go to somebody more reliable. Because they're just going to make excuses. That's a scary place for me. I'm like, no, expect me to be better. Expect me to repent. Expect me to grow. Because, I, I, you know, I want to I believe that I can get out of this. You know, I love this quote by Ed Anton, the author of the book, um, Repentance. It says, where there is an excuse, there's persistent sin. Sin remains as long as as the excuse survives. Now, here's the thing. You know, we make excuses a part of our life. You know, it eventually, it, it will define your character. And people who don't make excuses can see right through it. Now, if excuses are a part of your doctrine, the Bible says that it's false. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teaching to say what their itching ears want to hear. You know, there's some places that will tell you, you're all right the way you are. You don't need to change a thing. Because that's what we want to hear. We don't want to hear repentance. We don't, some of us, man, I don't, why is James preaching about this? Why, I'd rather hear from the book of Revelations. Why are we talking about change? I don't like change. I don't like change. Repentance is a part of the gospel message. And that's the only way we can truly appreciate our relationship with God is when we achieve repentance. You know, the good news, the good news is that God desires that we turn to him and he will move heaven and earth to see that we do. God is working behind the scenes to get us to have that relationship reconciled. God will not wait. God will not God will not sleep until we are at peace with him. That's how much He loves us. That's how much He desires to be with us. And second Peter three verse nine, it's the last passage we look at. the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If you have worldly sorrow, if you realize that you are, you know, you tend to to run to damage control, you want to try to fix things on your own own without being humble and getting help. If you realize that you have been wallowing in self-pity and that you find yourself coming back to the same point over and over again, You're emotional, but you're not moved. And if you realize that you've been making excuses, you've been blaming others for why you're where you're at, whether from the past, people in your past, people in your life now, your circumstances, your situations, if they're keeping you from moving forward, then you may want to get open and honest about the worldly sorrow in your life. If you realize that this has been your repentance, then the best is yet to come. True repentance still waits and it requires us being honest, admitting where we're at, admitting our wrongs, admitting our need to God so that God can turn us around and bring us back and get us back on the path that leads to him. I know it's not easy. It's not easy for me, but I'm glad that we're on the right track and that God is gracious and God will give grace to the humble next week. We're going to look at what godly sorrow produces because that's what we want. Amen? Amen. I love you guys.